Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. So glad everybody's here. Glad to see you. Looks like spring might be sticking around to stay this next time we get some warm weather, so praising the Lord for that. Got some friends traveling to Florida right now, and it's supposed to be cold down there. It's supposed to be supposed to about the same temperature on Wednesday down there where they're going to be at as, as it is up here. So um, thank you that you're here and not in Florida. We're glad to have you. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've got two messages left in this series through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to... We're going to uh, look at kind of the last uh, little bit here this, this uh, morning and then have uh, just uh, uh, the very last little bit, last couple verses next week. And then uh, after that, we'll be, it'll, it'll be kind of just so you're aware, kind of uh, interesting with Easter coming up. We're going we're gonna to jump into a series on the life of Joseph uh, immediately following First and Second Thessalonians. We'll take a break uh, in there for Easter and then jump back into the, the life of Joseph. Just going step by step, looking at God's purpose and God's providence in pain and suffering as we look at the life of Joseph. And so trust uh, you'll be looking for that. You can go ahead and start reading ahead even now. Uh, We'll just uh, uh, be eagerly looking forward to getting to that. But until we get there, we find ourselves in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verses 6 through 12. Verses 6 through 12. Where Paul, remember, last week he's, he's kind of already says, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you're going to do and you will do what we command. Now, th- that's in verses 1 to 5. So this is now the command. This is kind of the, the, big, uh, the big climax, if you will, of the book as he really kind of leans into this church on some things that they were allowing that were quite sinful. One thing, really. So verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage or exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So Paul now is going to speak some pretty strong words to this Thessalonian church. And really this morning, it's a, very, it's a very practical passage when we consider what it's saying. And in reality, it's saying because being idle is a sin, we should work quietly and earn our, earn our own living. Now I do want to touch up a, a little bit on the word idle. Because it's only used two t- this word idle is only used two times in the New Testament, and it's both in this passage. So the word idle, um, at least how Paul uses it and its connection with other, other words in the original language, to be idle doesn't just mean you're lazy or it doesn't just mean you don't work. An idle Christian, remember he's addressing Christian, an idle Christian is someone who replaces work with nuisance living. 
Remember, so he goes later, he says, I hear that some of you are idle. You're not busy at work, but you're busy bodies. And so being idle, at least in this passage, though laziness certainly plays a part in being idle, it's, it's, it's more trading the work life for the nuisance life. One of the de- definitions, even out of our own English dictionary, defines idle in its verb form as moving, loitering, or sauntering aimlessly. Okay, so even there, you kind of get this idea. It's not somebody who's just laying around, but somebody who's moving. They're, they're sauntering. They're loitering. They're going about. They're doing, they're doing active work, but it's aimless, and it's, and it's destructive and distracting. And so that's what, the Paul, uh, that's what Paul is kind of saying here. Uh, if you, uh, the NIV really kind of captures the sense of this word well because it, it says in the NIV, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. So the NIV translates that one word as idle and disruptive. And that's really kind of the sense of the word. It describes a Christian who is abandoning the God-given dignity of earning their own living in order to wander aimlessly, getting involved in what doesn't concern them, which is why the title of this message is Disorderly Conduct, because being idle is disorderly conduct. And so they're neglecting their God-given responsibility to work for their food, they're neglecting their God-given responsibility to earn their own living, and instead they are loafing their livelihood off of others, off of the church. Um, and so that's what Paul is really addressing here. And, and, bef- and you know, originally I kind of thought maybe this was the natural outcome of, you know, we've been talking about how they had errant theology when it comes to the end times. So there are a few commentators out there who say that perhaps the reason why they're living this way is because, well, they thought the Lord was going to come, so might as well quit working. It doesn't really matter. But there was even in that time, basically, it's not a direct parallel, but there was basically a welfare system. Where basically, and we talked about this when we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which I'm sure you all remember. Uh, there, was, there was what was called clientela in the Roman Empire. And basically what it was is that if you were, even if you weren't necessarily poor, but if you, you would connect yourself with a patron who had a lot of money and a lot of influence, and the idea was this patron would provide everything for you and in return you would kind of advance their political cause or something like that. So there was almost this sense in which you would, you would if you kind of attached yourself to this sort of government political program you would be well taken care of. You wouldn't have to work and all you had to do was kind of you know, just carry on somebody's political agenda. Sound familiar? That was in my notes. <clears throat> Paul gives four reasons why being idle is a sin. And then we're going to talk about some ways this really perhaps gives wisdom for things going on in our lives, in our country, and uh, trust we can see how the gospel uh, really confronts some of these things. But Paul gives four reasons why being idle is a sin, and number one, it's because it doesn't adhere to biblical teaching. Being idle does not adhere to biblical teaching. That's in verse 6, where he says, "We we command you, okay, so there's a command, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. And Paul says a number of times, we, we told, we, while we were with you, here's what we told you, we, we taught you this. But it's a command, and it's a command given on the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's really one of three commands in this passage. And this command is given to the people in the church not committing the sin of idleness. The command here is to keep away. Uh, the, the word means to avoid. It means to take another road. 
they were to avoid, the people in the church were to avoid those church members who were idle. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, which we won't take time to look at, but in, in, in that passage, Paul says to warn the idle. But now, because the people in the church that were idle didn't even listen to the warning, now Paul is saying, well, he, he wants them to keep away from them. And the reason is, is because any normal relationship with a person who is idle, and we know this from our, our experience in relationships, right? If, somebody, if we're really close with somebody, and, uh, you know, they're, they've, they're caught in sin. It's, it's really difficult for us to bring it up or talk about it. And so one of the ways Paul wants, wants, wants these people who are idle to know that this is sin and it's wrong is by this, this, uh, this worthy disapproval of the congregation. It's, it's hard to, it's not hard to know exactly what Paul meant, but but Paul is certainly saying that if there are members in the church who are idle, you are to keep, their, keep your distance from them so that they can know that this, was, this is sinful. But if you look down in verse 15, there's, a, there's an interesting, there's an interesting uh, kind of guard that Paul puts on this. Because Paul does put limits on how the church reacts to this church member, or these church members. Where he says, uh, he even says again, as for you, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But notice what it says in verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So there's a, there's a balance here. If, you, if you're familiar at all with church discipline from Matthew chapter 18, the very last step of church discipline is where Jesus says you are to te- treat a person like an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the cross, uh, a publican, a sinner, a tax collector, which in those days would have been the ultimate enemy of God's people. And so he says here, within that church membership, make sure there's a disapproval that is known to those who are being idle, yet he says don't treat them like an enemy of the cross, excommunication. So it takes a lot of wisdom to know how we should respond to sin. And Paul here is trying to give both direct teaching and also safeguarding these people. And again, to be idle is not just to be lazy. It's to be disorderly. It's to be irresponsible. It's a word that describes a way of life. It's somebody who's living disorderly and irresponsible. Uh, The lazy person neglects work. The idle person not only neglects hard work, but also becomes a nuisance, meddles in affairs that don't concern them, interferes with the work of others, and loafs their livelihood off of others. And so biblical teaching, it doesn't adhere, that sort of lifestyle does not adhere to biblical teaching. In short, their life is not orderly. It's not a responsible life that Christian doctrine should produce in followers of Jesus. And again, these Christians were not left in the dark about these matters. They had been instructed. They had been told how they ought to live and how they ought to work hard. Yet they weren't following the rules of the community. And the rule is simple. The rule is simple. Work. To be idle is to go against biblical teaching and it threatens fellowship with other believers. Something we'll look at even in just a little bit. And we know it goes against the biblical teaching uh, because Paul taught this same thing in 1 Thessalonians. He already kind of addressed this a little bit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your own hands as we instructed you. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, after God created all things, 
he, he, he created the entire world, and then he gave the entire world as a gift to Adam and Eve. To do what? To work. To work the ground. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, after God created everything, he actually says, well, he couldn't find anybody to work the ground. The elephants couldn't do it. The pigs couldn't do it. Trees couldn't do it. The bugs couldn't do it. And so God is looking around. And he says, I have nobody to work the ground. And so this even goes back to, a, you know, our theology of work goes back to even pre-curse sort of days. Biblical teaching in Ephesians and Colossians, the number of passages we get in Proverbs about that warn us against laziness. In our culture, it's a culture of unceasing comfort, culture of unceasing ease and toys and entertainment and stuff. Work will continue to get less and less attractive. And work, while at times it may be difficult, it may seem monotonous or tiring or seemingly futile, it's God's good gift to mankind that we as able-bodied adults can maintain the dignity that God gave us before the fall. And maintain the dignity of part of what it means to be human, and that is to work. Now I say that work is God's good gift to us, and the reason I say it's God's good gift to us is because that's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 13 says. And forgive me, for I don't have this on the screen, but perhaps mark that down. Because Ecclesiastes 3.13 says, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Take pleasure in your, in your toil. Right, toil, that's like hard stuff, like you're sweating, like you're not having fun necessarily. But take pleasure in all your toil. This, and then it says, this is God's gift to man. God's gift to man is that we would take pleasure in our toil and then we would enjoy the things that we earn when we produce things with our paychecks out of the ground. So listen, that job you're going to go to tomorrow in order to earn your living, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Even, I'm not saying everything that happens at work is good. Yeah, you may have a boss or manager or another employee that's just making life miserable, but that work is a good thing. Even with the pain, the trouble, the fatigue, and all the rest, work is a good thing. And it's a good thing because even with all the negative effects of sin that often pour into the workplace, like workplace relationship problems and, and, uh, and you know, schedule changes that don't make sense and a boss maybe that is abusing your time or abusing your effort or not getting paid enough or whatever it might be. Because even with all the effects of sin that pours into the workplace, all those effects of sin Jesus has redeemed in the workplace for the Christian. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Because for Christians, the workplace is actually the place where we serve King Jesus. That's redeeming the workplace. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Notice this. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, you are serving the Lord Christ. For Christians, the workplace is actually the place, one of the main places, where we serve King Jesus. King Jesus redeems the workplace. He redeems us in the workplace. He can take those hard times, those sinful times, and 
do it for his good. So we can't let the trinkets of this world keep us from serving our king in our place of employment for the glory of God. One thing we learn is that an idle life is an idolatrous life, serving self instead of the Savior. So number one, why being idle is a sin is it doesn't adhere to biblical teaching. And number two, it doesn't follow biblical examples. It doesn't follow biblical examples. Uh, Verse 7 through 9 is where we get this, where Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you. He says it's not because, uh, verse 9, it's not because we don't have this right, but, we, 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 but to, we, to give yourselves an example to imitate. So it doesn't follow biblical examples. And the example they had was the Apostle Paul. In Paul, they had a godly example of a life free from idleness. They had been instructed and shown that their lives would be free from being idle. And the idle Christians were not ignorant of Paul's teaching. They were just simply unwilling to obey and remember here, Paul says, for yourselves, know how you ought to imitate us. Like, Paul is like not leaving them any options here. You ought to imitate us. You should. You need to. You have to imitate us. Because Paul would work. Paul left them an example. Now, what example did Paul leave them? Well, verse 8 kind of tells us. First, Paul paid for the food he ate. Right? We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. So part of this work and part of the example that Paul was setting forth is that he ate, or he paid for what he ate. He did what was necessary to provide for himself. Now, I want to I interject something here, okay? Because this does not mean that Paul never accepted a friendly invite to go to somebody's house for dinner uh, in which, you know, it'd, be, it'd totally be on the generosity of the host to provide the food. Okay, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I don't think he said whenever anybody would invite him over for dinner, he'd be like, no, I can't unless I pay you for it. That just sounds stuck up and arrogant. So that's not what Paul is doing. I remember in high school, I was at my locker, and I remember hearing a conversation between two, um, I think I was a senior in high school, and I overheard a, a conversation between two two juniors uh, in the class below me, and apparently one of, the, one of the guys had forgotten to bring his lunch to school. And so his friend, which would have been his best friend at the ro- locker next to him, offered to give him a dollar to get something out of the vending machine. Remember when you could get something out of the vending machine for a dollar and even get money back? But he offered to give him a dollar to get something out of the vending machine. And here's that, here's in, in an almost a tone of disgust, the, the guy who forgot his lunch said something to the effect, no, Paul, the Apostle Paul would never have accepted anything like that. And I thought to myself, well, one of the things I thought to myself was, that's, I don't think that's right because I don't think Paul was a jerk and I don't think he was a snob. You can't accept a dollar to get some food from somebody because someone's trying to be generous to you. What Paul is saying is that his livelihood His livelihood did not depend on anybody else. If anything, the the tone of disgust that Paul has is towards those who are living sort of a parasitic life, just feeding off of others, when able-bodied adults should be producing for himself. So he paid for his own food, and of course, second here, in order to pay for his own food, he worked. 
And this is kind of a sharp contrast to show those who are idle their faults. Because remember, this would, this would have been read on a Sunday morning. This would have been read in public. Okay, so as the church is listening to this, they probably would have been able to identify the, the people in the church who are living this idle life, maybe dependent on the government or, or the, the, the government uh, clientele sort of system. But Paul said, I worked. And so these people are supposed to say, man, when Paul was here, he worked on top of all the other things he did. It was supposed to be a sharp contrast. He's trying to help people see their folly. He worked and others should work if they're able. And third, notice at the end of verse 8. He said, we paid for our food, we labored night and day, and then he says, this is also we might not be a burden to any of you. That word burden means to overcharge. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul wanted to be sure the way he lived his life didn't rack up a bill others had to pay. Paul wanted to be sure the way he lived, the way he lived his life, didn't rack up a bill that others had to pay. The idle, the idle Christian in this church, they relied on receiving their livelihood from others when they should as able-bodied adults, and notice I'm emphasizing able-bodied adults, should provide for themselves. Paul refrained from making financial demands even though he had the right as an apostle to do so. And he's, he did this to set an example. He's not doing this to set an example that churches shouldn't pay ministers of the gospel. He's doing this to set an example for those who were loafing all their livelihood off of others when they were able-bodied and able to work. And yet, there's another example from this passage that actually comes in verse 6. Because their command was in the name of the Lord Jesus. If Paul is one example, certainly Jesus is the other example we have. Our Savior came to do, remember what he said in John chapter 5, he came to do the work that his Father gave him to do. When the disciples came back, when he spoke with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said, man, they were wondering why he didn't want any food. And he said, has somebody brought him food? And he says, my food is to do the work that God has given me to do, to do the will of my Father. Jesus, growing up the son of a carpenter, would have worked manual labor. He worked. And again, in today's culture, we get a lot of examples of being idle. And we're going to touch more on this in a minute because I think it needs to be said, especially in our culture, but the American government perpetuates idleness through programs for people who don't need to rely on the government for their livelihood. There was a time in America in which it was known for its hard work and was a prime example for hard work. But the message and example we get today from our culture will diminish hard work and provide ways out of hard work and provide ways out of providing for your own. But we have to remember the message and the example we get from the Bible. Work is a good thing. And if you've been redeemed in Jesus, then he wants to use you to to redeem your work for God's glory. We'll touch some more on some of that here in just a minute, but let's go to number three. Number three, the third reason that idle, being idle is a sin is because it doesn't accept biblical responsibilities. And I hope you've picked that up kind of as we've gone through this. This is a little bit on repeat here, so we won't spend as much time here. But this is the second command Paul is giving. Okay, Remember, the first one is to the church, and now he's saying he's, he's given another command or referring to another command in which when he was with them, he told them, If you're not willing to work, you should not eat. It's a little pithy saying that's hard to forget. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. 
Again, this is not referring to someone who is unable to work or has no opportunity to work. That is, they can't find a job or they can't land one. That's, that's not who Paul is addressing here. Paul is not addressing people who are unable to work or have no opportunity to work. Yet even still, Paul believed in the dignity of human work. And he says, no food should be given to the one who is able to work, yet living an idle life. That any able-bodied person who has the opportunity to work, has the ability to work, but is simply unwilling to work, should not eat. Because what's one good motivation to work? It's when you're hungry. You've heard the stories of what so many people do in order to get food. And this is the great motivation to work. We've already talked about the biblical responsibility as we've gone through all this, so I want to look at the last one before we touch on just a couple points of application. Because number four, it doesn't produce biblical fellowship. And it's kind of bookends here what Paul is saying when it comes to the biblical fellowship because one, he's telling, he's telling the church to, to keep away from any brother who, is not a, who walks in idleness. And then in verse 12, uh, verse 11 and 12, he says, um, uh, he says, we hear that there are some among you walking in idleness. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. And it kind of again bleeds into verse 13 and 14. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them. So Paul gets very frank here. So like Paul is basically saying, I'm not just talking about some like potential situation you may run into. Now Paul gets very direct. He says, I've heard, whether they wrote a letter, whether Timothy brought back a report, he says, I've heard that there are people in the church walking in idleness. We are here that there are those among you who walk in idleness. So he's not just talking about some potential run-in with an idle Christian. He's calling out those who claim to be followers of Jesus in the church who are living an idle life. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal even if it's a small pocket because we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a little leaven leavens what? The whole lump. And again, just to remember our definition of being idle, being idle is when someone lives a life where others pay the bill of their lazy, disorderly lifestyle. They were neglecting productive labor. labor. That's on one side. They were being lazy. They were neglecting productive labor. But notice here it, it doesn't stop there. And this is, this is why it disrupts biblical fellowship in verse 11. Because he says, we hear that there are some among you not busy at work, but busy bodies. Again, this is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. So not only are they neglecting work, the lazy side of things, but they're, they're disruptive. They're disorderly. They're meddling in affairs that don't really concern them. It's as if they didn't have their own affairs to worry about because they didn't work. So they spent their time worrying about the affairs of others. And it set up a barrier between them and other members of the church. A busy body, a meddler, is a nuisance. And it's not somebody who cultivates biblical or produces biblical fellowship. They make a nuisance out of themselves. They interrupt the productive work of others. And so Paul is giving them a command and an exhortation, right? Because the goal is change. Paul's not just looking to embarrass people or beat people up. His goal is change. He wants them, he wants them to, to, to fulfill the, the mandate. He wants them to look like Jesus. He wants them to honor Jesus. He wants the church to, to honor Jesus. And so he says, live a quiet and tranquil life. Work, earn your own food. 
It doesn't produce biblical fellowship, but instead it kind of becomes a nuisance. Uh, It becomes just kind of a house-to-house busybody meddler worrying about the affairs of others. And if you want to know the the route in which this is possible in our culture today is just simply look at what our culture has given us to promote this sort of idleness, this sort of busybody lifestyle when we look at social media, YouTube, the internet, and all that stuff. And it's not that those things can't have an appropriate place in our lives. But surely, endless scrolling, unending engagement on social media is a symptom of being idle. And what I mean is that we, when, we're, when, we're, when we're not busy with our own affairs, when we're not busy with our own lives, we're not busy fulfilling the, the responsibilities that God has given us in the workplace, in the family, in the church. Well, what, what we have in our culture today is we, have, we don't even have to go to somebody's house to be a nuisance or we don't, even have to, we, don't even have to, we don't even have to go anywhere to meddle in the affairs of others. We can meddle in the affairs of every person in the entire world right on our phone. I was say, like, this thing right here is, is an idol that makes us idle. I just thought of that. <laughs> you know how many thousands of people I can meddle right now? How many thousands of people I can go see what they're doing in their lives right now? Instead of worrying about my life, my wife, my kids, my church, my ministry, my work. Social media, the internet, it just gives us a convenient way to put our lives into idle. To let the engine run but not really go anywhere. And I hope you can see how this fails to produce biblical fellowship because biblical fellowship is servanthood. It's, it's the giving of our very, our very selves to others, not giving others our bills, but giving others ourselves. I want to give you four points of application. And I realize we're about to touch on some hot topics, so I'm not going to claim to be conclusive on everything, but I think this passage helps us with a couple things. Number one, this passage helps us see that work pleases God. I think that's the easy one. Are, you, are we working for his glory? We need to remember that Paul, again, is not addressing people who are unable to work or have no opportunity to work, that can't get a job. He is talking to people unwilling to work. He also isn't saying, again, just read it, that we should never accept a meal from someone who's trying to be generous to us. He's saying that our livelihood as an able-bodied adult should not be dependent on others. So there's just the practical application here. Is for us to see that work pleases God. And then in our workplace, when we serve King Jesus, we are, we are fulfill, fulfilling the very identity in which God has called us into through faith in Jesus Christ. So the application is really simple. Work. Fulfill the God-gifted mandate. But a passage like this also helps, gives us wisdom in how we provide for others. And asking the question, are we enabling the idol? Because I know there's many parents in here, grandparents, uncles, aunts, who struggle with a son, a daughter, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, whatever, who continues to come and ask for more money. Or perhaps is living with you and you're, and you're struggling with knowing, do I, do I cut them off? Do I not? And that requires more wisdom than I'll be able to walk through with you now. But perhaps you do have those questions on how much money you should give to a son or daughter, grandchild, niece or nephew. And again, this, this does not solve every issue. And you still need to seek the Lord's wisdom. 
But this passage may help. We should be generous to the poor and needy, and we should provide for brothers and sisters who are in need. That's James chapter 2. As a matter of fact, if you don't do that, James says you have every right to question whether or not you're even a Christian. And so we should help the needy with a clear conscience. We should help the needy full of generosity and with cheerfulness, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Providing for others as we are able while somebody gets back on their feet, I think pleases the Lord. And I think is a good thing. But providing for others to the extent that it encourages them to be dependent on others, idle, is not helpful but harmful. Both to them and to us. It's not a good steward of our money or our relationships to promote idleness. And again, I know that doesn't solve everything, but I think this passage helps us gain wisdom. Third thing here is this passage helps us assess our nation's welfare system. And the reason why I go here is because it's a hot topic issue, and I know there's people all over the board on this. But I think we have to ask the question, as we, as we look in our culture today, which our culture is, is in a lot of ways is very influential in the church, as, as, as we even see our, ourselves growing weary of work and more and more prone towards idleness and taking all the outs that we possibly can. We need to assess our nation's welfare system. Are we producing, as a nation, the, the dignity of the Imago Dei? That just means the image of God. But this is something the gospel speaks to. And while our nation, I believe, is right in providing a safety net for the poor and needy, I think it's right for our nation to do that. To provide a safety net for the poor and needy through our welfare system. The system itself has exploded into a program that erases human dignity and creates unhealthy dependency out of able-bodied adults. In 2019, Ben Carson, who was then the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development... He wrote an article in 2019, and he noted how since the year 2000, since the year 2000, our nation has seen a 400% increase in able-bodied adults receiving some type of welfare. And so in short, what I'm saying, again, not solving every issue and not saying it's, it's always wrong to be dependent on the government, but what I'm saying is that our government more and more tears down the beauty of being humans created in the image of God. Mark Ross, and you might say, well, what does this have to do with work? This image of God and work, where, where, what is, how do these go together? Mark Ross, he wrote an article on the Imago Dei, the image of God, and here's what he says. I want you to listen closely. He says, bearing the image of God, the human persons are given a measure of sovereignty over all the earth with dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, and every creeping thing. They are also charged to subdue the earth. The language suggests a ruling, even a conquering position, as Psalm 8 makes plain. Genesis 2, 4 through 25 shows that man is to follow the example of God in his stewardship of the earth. God plants a garden in Eden, and he puts man there to work, to work it, and to keep it. What God initiates, man is to sustain and cultivate. Part of being created in the image of God is that God created us like him in that he wanted us to care for the world that he gave us. And it's, it takes work. And so the, the principle I'm making is simply this, and there's a lot of different ways of welfare, and, 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 and many of you are utilizing many government resources to help you sustain life. 
I'm not making a judgment on any of that. But what I'm saying is as we continue to increase and the government continues to call for us to be dependent on them, it continues to erase and to crumble the dignity of being created in the image of God. And it continues to encourage idleness as a Christian. And for the Christian who has been reconciled to the creator through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, this reconciliation provides us the purpose that we need to to work and to do what God has called us to do. The final thing I want to do as we close out here is I think this passage also helps us assess our spiritual lives. Now Paul is talking about physical stuff, but I can't help but say, well, if we're not physically idle, are we spiritually idle? Perhaps you're, you spiritually wander through life aimless. You find yourself jumping after anything that seems interesting. But if Jesus can and does give life to the spiritually dead, he can certainly give purpose and renewal to your idle life. Spiritually idle or otherwise. He can give energy and purpose to those who are disorderly. He can give energy and purpose to those who feel like they don't know what they're doing, what their purpose is. A life that adheres to biblical teaching, follows biblical examples, accepts biblical responsibilities, and produces biblical fellowship. That's what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus can give to you. But you have to have Jesus. You have to have trusted him as your savior. Because some of you may be just not even spiritually idle, you're just spiritually dead. And you have no spiritual life. And there's no way for you to, to, to redeem the workplace and to serve King Jesus because you don't trust King Jesus. You've never accepted him as your crucified and risen Savior. So Jesus can give life to those who are dead, and he can give energy and renewal to those who are idle, whether spiritually speaking or idle just in their day-to-day life. And so let's be those who, in the name of the Lord Jesus and standing on the Imago Dei, the image of God, redeemed through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be people who live lives that adhere to biblical teaching, follow biblical examples, accept biblical responsibilities, and produce biblical fellowship. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us not to be idle. As more and more this world continues to fill our minds and provide opportunities and show us all the ways in which we can neglect all the responsibilities that you have given to us, I pray that you would help us to be your sons and daughters, clinging to the identity we have in Jesus Christ, serving our King Jesus in the workplace, all the while looking forward to the day where you return and uh, we're glorified and we'll spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.